These religious leaders were not thrilled. They had animosity towards him. They wanted him dead. In fact, the scriptures point out that they were already plotting his murder at this, at this point. So there's a few things in this passage today that I want us to look at as it relates to our priorities and the expectation that God has upon us. And the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that people will test our priorities. People will test our priorities. Let me read verses 34 and through 36 again. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Let's stop there. What are the Pharisees trying to do? They're trying to discredit Jesus. You go back to chapter 21, they've begun to ask him questions. The Pharisees ask him a question about Caesar, about paying taxes to him, right? And they expect Jesus to say, no, no, you shouldn't give that to Caesar. But Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. They were trying to bankrupt him politically so they could discredit him. But it didn't work. Then the Sadducees come along, and and they're going to ask him a question about the resurrection. They're going to try to get him to be bankrupt theologically so they could discredit him, so they could go after him. But it doesn't work. And now with the third question that we're going to look at in just a moment, they're going to try to trick him and discredit him even more theologically. They're going to look at the law. They're going to use the law and try to use it against him. But look what happens in this passage. It says the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. Literally, this means silenced. They had set out to make Jesus look like a fool, and he turned it on them and made them look like a fool. So much so that they couldn't even utter another word. The verb in the original language here for silence literally means an unwilled gagging. Jesus had just done What I equate as the Jesus mic drop. He tells them what he is and he walks off the stage and drops the mic. So much so that they couldn't even say what they wanted to say. I don't know if you've ever seen a situation like this. But usually one of two things happen to somebody when this happens. You either get humble. You're humbled by the situation or what someone says to them, to you. Or you get even because you push up against it. As I'm going through memory lane here this week... I remembered a story in high school I thought I'd share with you. So I was a member of the speech and debate team in high school. I was a pretty good speech member, went to contests, was very successful with that. I was a horrible debate team member. I was a horrible debater. I couldn't do it at all. But, you know, it was something else to do, so I did it. So I was on team debate. There were four of us on a team together, and we would go to competitions and, and usually just get destroyed. But uh, that was fun. So we found out that there was a debate at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, for high school students that you could enter. And so we said, oh, okay, we're busy doing everything else, so why don't we go to St. Louis and do that too? So we signed up for it. But here's what happened. All of us were so busy with doing so many different things that we didn't have time to prepare for the topic for the debate. So we went into this debate totally unprepared. It was terrible. So we show up in St. Louis. We're staying at a hotel up by the airport, not very far from here. And we get to to UMSL, and we find out we're one of only two teams that have registered for this debate. So we're automatically in the finals. (laughs) I was just trying to get out of day of school. And so... 
And, and here's the better part. The other team is from our arch rival high school. So we go up as knucklehead boys in high school as we do. We go up to our arch rivals and we just spew at the mouth. We're like, oh, we haven't prepared for this at all. We haven't done anything. What were we thinking? And they looked at us and they're like, oh, we haven't either. Blah, blah, you know, all these things. So we get to the debate. We're in the theater at UMSL on the stage, beautiful theater, hundreds of people in the, <laughs> in the room. And I'm looking around thinking, oh, man, what's going to happen? And three minutes into the debate, it was kind of a back and forth thing. The te- different team members would go up and back. And three minutes in, I put my head on the table because I knew we were sunk because we got hoodwinked by our arch rivals. They had prepared for this debate. And within three minutes, I knew it. So the next hour consisted of each one of us going up one by one, going, oh, oh, shit, oh, that's about all we could say. And I have to picture that this is what the Sadducees are doing. They're gagged. They, they know they're supposed to be saying something. They kind of have thoughts in their head, but they can't even say it. It humbled us. But what do the Pharisees do here? Well, they decide to get even. So what do they do? They huddle together. That's always a good sign when people huddle together. They huddle together. What comes out of their huddle? They call in an expert. They call in a lawyer. That's why it's called a lawyer, a lawyer. He was an expert in the law. A guy who knew the law backwards and forwards. Surely it would be this guy that would be able to go and ask Jesus a question and mess him up. And so the lawyer asked, out of all the commandments in the law, and there are a lot of them, which is the greatest? Now before we continue, before we get into his answer, what do we learn from this? Well, we learn and we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees they're trying to trick Jesus. They stir him away to, 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 to make a mistake. They, they try to take him away from the priority that he had on earth. We learn that people will test our priorities. They will try to make us mess up. That things will test our priorities. Culture, even amongst believers sometimes, will test our priorities. Even good people and good things can test our priorities. And as followers of Jesus, do we know what our priorities are? Are we confident in them? Are we living them? And when we are put to the test, can we confidently give an answer? Now, some of you may be thinking, I'm saying, you all need to be great apologists, study apologetics and defend the faith. That's not even where I'm going. What I'm suggesting is, Maybe there's a scenario where you know where the great priorities that we're going to talk about in a moment begin, but you're so busy, and then people ask you to do more things, good things, that you know are going to take away from doing the greater priority in your life. What is your response? What are our priorities? The scripture tells us in the passage that our first priority is to love God. It's a verse that we know. If we've been to church, we've heard this verse. It's the great commandment. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So Christ, essentially, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Why does he do this? It's super important because Christ is showing that the requirement for God's people has always been the same and indeed will always be the same. And that requirement for God's people is to love God with all of their being, every ounce of who they are, 
This is the expectation of, upon God's people. And what is the demand that God calls for? He calls for his people to love him. He says, you love me. But what does love mean? Because many times we don't put this word love, which is a very, we, in our minds, a very emotive word, together with command, which is a very charging word. But a lot of times we don't put those two words together. Charles Spurgeon speaks on this. I was reading a little bit of him this week. And he warns us to be very careful because this commandment is just that. It's a commandment. Let me, let me read you a few lines of what he wrote on this. Much wiser man than me, probably. He said, there are some who do not forget that there is a God. No, they are astronomers, for example, and they turn their eyes to heaven and they view the stars and they marvel at the majesty of the creator. Or they dig into the bowels of the earth and they are astonished at the magnificence of God's works. Or they examine the animal and marvel at the wisdom of God and the construction of its, of its anatomy. They, whenever they think of God, think of him with the deepest awe, with the most profound reverence, you would never hear them say a curse word or swear. You will find that their souls are possessed of a deep awe of the great creator. But, my friends, that is not enough. This is not obedience to the command. God does not say you shall wonder at him. You shall have awe at him. He says, you shall love me. You shall obey me. What Spurgeon is saying here is important for us to understand is that God demands every ounce of our being. He demands every day, 365 days a year, not just Sunday at 1030 and then go to Applebee's. No, it's every ounce of our lives. He demands it all. He's not pleased with anything but. Let's look before we continue at the different things he says we're supposed to love him fully with. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. The Hebrew word for heart, lev, it's, it, it, it's a much more encompassing word than we think a lot of times of heart. For Hebrew culture, they had a broader understanding of heart than ours. They thought of the heart as the organ that gives physical life. We think of that. They think of it as the place where you think and make sense of the world, where you feel emotions and where you make choices. The heart has to do with affection and where your affection lies. Think of your heart as the rudder on a ship. Its affections steer our lives. It's very easy to find out what's steering our lives with three questions about our heart. The first question is, we have to discern what occupies our time. Where is your affection? It's how you spend your time. Number two, what motivates your actions? What are the motivations behind what you do? Why are you doing what you do? And number three, what shapes our aspirations and their rewards? Why do we seek to achieve? Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The question is, what do you treasure? What is the most important thing that, can, that can, takes up the capacity of your heart? And sometimes I think, well, I'm, I'm pretty in love with God. I, I, I love him and, and, I, and I serve him. But then I read Paul in Philippians 3, 8, and he says, man, I count everything as lost because of this surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ. And I think, Matthew, do you count all things rubbish? Because you need to gain Christ? No. I like to be comfortable. I like air conditioning. I like sleep. I like all kinds of things just like you do. See, but to love God with all your heart means tuning your heart to God's heart. It's like if we were going to tune this piano down here, we brought a piano tuner in, they would bring tuning forks in and they would hit the tuning fork and then they would tune the string as, to that tuning fork. We tune our hearts to God's heart. We find those things in the word of God. We pursue that through prayer. We experience that through serving what he deems important. Loving the Lord your God with all your soul, our soul is the rooted part of who we are. While loving God with our heart involves our affection, loving God with our soul involves loving God with our devotion. The soul is the part of us which defines who we are. It's the, the biblical definition of the soul involves our, our life, our inner self, our identity. Think of it as the core, the rooted you, who you are. To love the Lord your God with all your soul means to love him in the way we live our lives the choices we make, and the behaviors that reflect what's happening at the core of who we are. So to love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your soul is a devotion. It speaks to who you really are. It speaks to who you are pursuing. It speaks to who you are devoted to. Leslie and I have been married almost 10 years, and um, if you haven't been married, marriage is wonderful. For the young ones, marriage is not always easy. And I get an amen. There are times when you just want to be served yourself in marriage and not serve your spouse. There's been times in my marriage once or twice that way. <laughs> but even when I want to serve myself, not serve my wife, I'm still devoted to her and I serve her. Imperfectly, by the way. But why do I serve her? Because I'm devoted to her. Even when it's things like the worst job in the world, like emptying a diaper genie. That is the worst job in the world. It's the easiest job, but it's the worst. But when Leslie asks me to do it, I, I, I don't get warm fuzzies about it. I'm like, oh boy. No. But I do it because I'm devoted to her and she asks me to. Loving God with all of our souls means we seek to obey what the scriptures say. It means we ask God to use them to change us at our core. This is the majesty of the gospel. That is the life-changing, and it can, and it will, and it has to change us. Loving the Lord with all of our mind. Our minds, much like our hearts, are full of turmoil. I'm convinced that even more than our hearts, if you look around our culture, even probably in our church, our minds are where the enemy has a field day with us. Loving the Lord your God with all your mind means you're daily having to renew your mind. Romans 12, 2. When this verse is, a light is turned on on this verse for you, it will blow your mind. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, meaning the world wants to conform you to its ways. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, meaning the renewal of your mind brings transformation in your life. 
Not just a salve to a pain, but it transforms you into something different. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The world wants to corrupt our thinking. Think about it. Self-doubt, immorality, fear, negativity, they creep into our minds. But these are not the things of the Lord. Loving God with our minds truly means we have to ask the question, what are we putting in our minds? I'm convinced that many of us just rationalize this away. We don't realize how powerful putting things in our mind really are. The reality is true. What we consume becomes what we are. So, for example, if we're around people and listen to things all the time that just say fear, 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 pretty good chance you're going to be a fearful, anxious person. Don't consume that. In my own life, whenever I felt fear, in my own life, whenever I felt anxiety, I've never been able to say that has equated and went right along with, man, I'm in the Word a lot, and I'm consuming the Word of God. Now, I'm not suggesting you won't be anxious even if you do. I'm not suggesting you won't have moments of fear even if you do. Trust me, you will. But here is what we need to do. We need to renew our minds. We have to know what we're consuming. It will infect your entire life. So we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. We could talk about this for weeks in the sermon series. We're called to love our Lord, the Lord our God with our, all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. How do we do this? If this is the expectation, how do we achieve this? Remember, it's a command, not a way to have a better life. There's three options that we can choose. The first option will be to work really hard, to muster enough strength every day to be better moral people. In this option, we work tirelessly, believing in our own strength that every day, 365 days a year, we can love God with our entire heart. We can love God with our entire soul. We can love God with our entire mind. The problem is, is the only way we could do that is if we were perfect. And friends, we're not. The scriptures say we're all sinners. We have all sinned. We all sin. And we all fall short of the glory of God. What's well, option two? Option two is the opposite of option one, and, and it's the posture of this. And you say, well, God's in control. That, that's a good start. So I really don't have to worry about this. I'll just hang out. I'll know I'm not going to do this very well, and I guess it'll all be well in the end. Indeed, God is in control. But this posture ignores the command and the expectation that we're given. Then there's option three, obviously the one I would suggest, is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart by asking him to change our hearts. We love the Lord our God with all of our soul by asking him to move our soul. We love the Lord our God with all of our minds by asking him to renew our minds. The bottom line is we pursue Jesus we pursue him. 
obediently, seeking to love, seeking to serve, seeking to honor him with our lives, seeking to see our entire lives being changed from the inside out, knowing that I have no control, that it is a supernatural work every day that just holds me in his grace. So we pursue him not to keep, be a better rule keeper because we can't do it. But we pursue him because at the end of the day, it is only because of Christ that God sees this command and sees it fulfilled in us. It is only because of Christ in our lives that this is possible. That's the whole point of the law. It's not to keep a check mark of we're pretty good. It's to show us we're sinners. It's to show us that we have need beyond ourselves. And the only one that can help us is Jesus. This is what Philippians 4.13 means. Not, not winning a race and not achieving some goal. No, Philippians 4.13, it is Christ in us. Christ who allows us to honor God. So we are in complete reliance and worship and dependence upon him. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see us, he sees Christ. So we pursue Christ. We lavish in his grace. Because every day we walked into this room this morning and every one of us have sinned and not honored God. But because of Jesus, we have hope. Because of Jesus, we might be found blameless. In order to love God with our everything means we have to give everything away. In order to love God with our all, we have to give everything away. It also means that we don't allow the good things in our lives to become white noise because we're so busy doing good things that we're not experiencing growth and we're not growing closer to him. Think of the story of Mary and Martha, another sermon, another day. It means we must turn our lives to Jesus Christ, who is the one person who will allow us through the, the body and the blood, this thing we just remembered, who will allow us to see this command fulfilled. Next week, I'll continue in our series. We're going to look at the second command that Jesus gives us here, loving our neighbor, as well as a commission, a little commission, we Baptists know a little bit, that it gives each one of us. It's going to be a lot of the same theme, though. Can't do it on our own. My question for you today is this. Do you know Jesus? Because friends, without Christ, you cannot honor God. Without Jesus Christ and him alone, you cannot honor God. You can't even begin to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Other gospels have strength in there as well. For those of you who know Christ, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you trying to honor God in your own power, in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own ability? Friends, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out trying. It will never work. Do you need to repent and turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know you, but man, I've been trying to live in my own power Get on your knees and pray. You can pray at the altar here if you want in a moment. These steps are open to you. The expectation is that we would love God with all of our being.
Friends, the answer is simple. The only way to meet that expectation is knowing Jesus and being empowered and having him live through you. Let me pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you are the only way that we may receive salvation, that you are the only way that we can love God, that you are the only way. There is no other way. Jesus, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. And my friends here, we're all sinners here today. And we need you. Jesus, we need you to be our hope. We need you to be our joy. And we need you. And as as we've done here this morning, we proclaim that we believe in in the body and the blood. And we believe that there's power in that. And so we bless your name today. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us. Jesus, you are our only hope. We love you. We're grateful for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to make a decision for Christ today, come on down. We'll be down here. If you need to uh, um, want to be baptized, and what, whatever it may be that you need to do, we'll be down here this morning to receive you. We'd love to receive you. I think we're going to sing a song. Let's do it. Sing, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. And this morning, as you stand, will you lay your chains here at the altar? Perhaps there is something, as Brother Matthew said, there's something that has been holding you back, maybe lack of priority. Whatever it is, lay your chains at the altar. Sing with me, amazing grace. My chains are gone.
my chains are gone. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns unending love. Amen. Let's sing that chorus one more time. My chains are gone. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns unending love. Amazing. We have Chloe Klaus uh, for membership by baptism. And so I know many of you out there have seen Chloe grow up in the church, and so she's just all she knows. So this is so, so exciting to see. And she has her cheerleading crew right over here that are uh, <laughs> cheering her on. And so that's so, so great. Uh, Chris, Carrie, you want to come on up? And uh, if you accept Chloe as a member of this family, please stand and say amen. Amen. Yes. Come on over here. Get over by dad. <laughs> there you go. And you'll be there. You're their deacon. And Andy, Andy Stroud is their deacon, so that'll be fantastic. So they'll make their way to the back. We'll take them. We'll take them. There you go. Yeah, he's great. So uh, they'll make their way to the back, and you can, as we leave, you can greet them uh, walking out. So. All right, you can take your seat. Have someone to pray. Come on up. Rick Grantham is going to pray for our offering this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the blessings that you give us. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today to worship you and to serve you. And we thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in this country to do that. And Lord, as we take this blessing, uh, this offering, we ask that you bless it, that you will um, just help us to give joyfully and thankfully. And after all, we're only giving back what you've given to us. Let us use it to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 